You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. President Trump announced via tweet a 5% tariff on all imports from Mexico unless it takes, quote, decisive measures to stem migrants entering the U.S., to get a sense of what this means for the U.S.-Mexican relationship, we turn to Duncan Wood. Duncan is uh, director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center based in Washington, D.C. Duncan, thank you so much for joining us. I guess let's start off with just a sense of how significant is this move by President Trump to impose these tariffs potentially? I think it's hugely significant um, in the sense, uh, well, in two senses. First of all, uh, what it's going to mean for the bilateral relationship and for the generally positive relations that have existed so far between uh, Trump and uh, President uh, López Obrador in Mexico. And secondly, I think it's hugely significant in terms of domestic politics here in the United States. Um, this is going to have broad, far-reaching, and perhaps uh, unpredicted uh, uh, consequences for uh, for the election in 2020. So, uh, Duncan, President Trump said that if he imposes tariffs on Mexico, companies will leave that country to avoid paying them. Do you agree? Uh, I actually don't think that that's, uh, that's the case, at least in, in the short term. I think that what we're going to see is we're going to see a, uh, uh, a rather vigorous response from the Mexican government, uh, retaliatory tariffs, uh, which will hit uh, United States uh, agricultural exporters in particular. And that will bring, first of all, the, uh, the U.S. Senate to pressure the president. And secondly, I think the president is going to have to uh, accept that this may be, in fact, uh, counterproductive. But, you know, one of the things that Mexico has going for it right now is that uh, you know, Mexico is often seen as being an alternative uh, to China in terms of producing for export to the United States. Due to the trade tensions that exist between the U.S. and China right now, uh, Mexico has been benefiting enormously. If these tariffs are applied in the, uh, you know, not just in a short-term way, but in the long-term, um, as a long-term measure, then I think we're going to see that that will obviously compromise Mexican competitiveness. But to try to de-link the Mexican and U.S. economies at this point in time, where we see a, a North American manufacturing platform that is highly integrated, 
integrated supply chains that have been built up over a period of 30 years. It's just unreasonable to think that that's going to be the case. And in many areas of the of the U.S. economy, we're going to see prices going up for U.S. Uh, goods uh, that depend upon imports of parts uh, from Mexico. And that's going to compromise not just the uh, uh, the consumers in uh, here in the United States who are going to have to pay more for their goods, but it's also going to compromise the competitiveness of American firms as they try to compete in the global economy. So, Duncan, one of the questions is, you know, for will these tariffs move Mexico to act as the president wants? Do you think they will be effective? There's a serious problem in the logic here, and that is that Mexico could do more if it wanted to. Mexico is already doing an enormous amount. Uh, between January and March of this year, Mexico has been deporting ever-increasing numbers of Central Americans. So uh, between January and March of this year, they deported around 22,000 Central Americans uh, from Mexican territory. If we look back over the last five years, Mexico has deported more Central Americans from Mexican territory than the U.S. has from U.S. territory. So Mexico is already doing a lot. Secondly, Mexico does not have spare resources to apply to this, these kind of programs. And the United States is not offering any kind of aid. In the past, I mean, particularly if we go back to 2014, when the United States pressured Mexico to implement something called the Plan Frontera Sur or, the, or their southern border plan, the United States provided enormous amounts of financial, um, uh, logistical and technical aid to enable them to do that. This is a, just a cold demand on the part of, uh, of President President Trump that the Mexicans can do more. Mexico is already in um, a period of fiscal austerity. They call it actually Republican austerity there. And the president is desperately trying to, uh, uh, to, to balance his budget. So there's not a lot of spare resources available. So I don't see how they could possibly do more. And here's the problem is that, in fact, it may result in less willingness on the part of the Mexican government to continue collaborating with the United States. So, Duncan, I'm trying to understand the legality of putting these tariffs on uh, goods coming from Mexico, given the current trade agreements in place, because President Trump is not doing it for that. He's saying he's doing it because of, well, he's basically for the immigration issues. Does this sort of violate any provisions within the existing agreements? So um, the president has powers under, um, under U.S. law to enact uh, economic measures for reasons of a natural national emergency. And so that's really what he's, uh, that, that's the, the justification that he's using here. Mexico will say that this is actually a violation of the NAFTA. There's also a violation of WTO law. And Mexico will use that as their justification for enacting retaliatory tariffs. Um, now, the United States will, uh, president will say that he is justified according to U.S. law. But we've already heard Senator Chuck Grassley uh, come out and say that he believes that the president has exceeded his powers here. So this will clearly become a congressional fight as well. And that's where I see that the president is probably going to find that he's on, uh, on, on weak or, or unfirm ground. Um, and particularly if we see pressure uh, mounting up in rural constituencies amongst, uh, amongst farmers in particular, a constituency that he desperately needs for his re-election bid in 2020. Duncan, ultimately, what do you think this trade issue, this tariff issue, what effect will it have on this USMCA deal, the greater, broader deal? Well, it, uh, it muddies the waters here in the United States. 
um, because it's just another issue. I mean, we had just got rid of Section 232 tariffs on aluminum and steel that was seen as being a major sticking point to getting uh, uh, Canada and Mexico to ratify the treaty from their, from their end. Um, we know that there is enormous tension between the White House and Speaker Pelosi, and Speaker Pelosi uh, seems very reluctant to move ahead at this point with a ratification process here in the United States. Um, and now with these measures, I think we're just going to see that uh, in Mexico, uh, the Congress, which had begun considering um, the USMCA ad- agreement there, which is has the status of a treaty in Mexico. It's not just an agreement. It's actually a treaty. They call it the, uh, the Mexico-United States-Canada Treaty there, TMEC. Um, that requires uh, approval by the Mexican Senate. And whilst there was generally a positive attitude towards ratification after the repeal of the Section 232 tariffs, now I can see that this is going to generate a backlash there. And a lot of people within the Mexican political system are going to say, why would we sign a free trade deal with a partner that is going to continually uh, find another excuse to punish us um, using tariffs for things over which we have very little control? Duncan Wood, thank you so much for being with us and uh, breaking it down. Duncan Wood, director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Well, Lisa, I have to admit that I was not aware how many cars and car parts we import from Mexico, but it's a lot, like a real lot. So to help us explain how big it is, we welcome Alan Baum. He's principal. Yeah, that's a technical CFA term. Uh, Alan Baum, principal from Baum and Associates. He joins us from West Bloomfield, uh, Michigan. So I'm sure he knows a thing or two about cars. So, Alan, just give us some history as to why... Mexico is such a big supplier of autos to the U.S. Well, the, the obvious one, of course, is cost, uh, the lower cost of labor. Uh, but it's also trade. And, of course, in this case, it's trade, not the way uh, the president is talking about it. But the Mexican trade laws uh, with the rest of the world, uh, they have a lot of no-tariff agreements. And so companies uh, from Japan, from Germany, uh, from Korea uh, flock, as well as, of course, the U.S., uh, flock to Mexico in order to provide vehicles, not just to North America, but to the world. So one thing I'm I'm struggling to understand, could Ford and General Motors, both of their shares down, General Motors, uh, 4.3% decline this morning. Could they just shift their supply chains out of Mexico, avoid the tariffs, avoid the political fallout, uh, and you know perhaps increase costs a bit, but immunize themselves from these types of uh, trade uncertainties? And of course, the answer is no. Uh, if they could, that would mean they were running extremely inefficient uh, plants, having the capability to move from one plant uh, in one country to another. Uh, the whole system is, of course, tied together. Uh, and uh, even that's even true with their suppliers. Even if they said, okay, we're going to stick with the same suppliers because we know those are good companies, but we just want you to move to plants outside of Mexico. Again, that would be very very poor management on the part of their supply base. So, Alan, given what you know about these automakers in the current competitive landscape, 
what, how do you think the automakers, if these tariffs do go through, and maybe they go, go through maybe the, the highest levels that the president is proposing, to what extent do you think they will pass along price uh, increases versus you know, trying to eat it in the margin? I mean, how do you think they'll react? Well, as with any product, it's based upon what the consumer will bear. Uh, and so if we're talking about crossovers and, and uh, sport utility vehicles and trucks, which are more popular with consumers, perhaps they'll be able to pass some of it along. Uh, with respect to cars that are a harder sell right now, uh, they're not selling uh, without the tariffs. They wouldn't sell very well with them. Uh, so uh, it'll be a case-by-case decision. And it's also a very short-term decision. The, you know, the way these tariffs, uh, proposed tariffs, are are, are posited, uh, they would go up uh, per, uh, on a monthly basis. So what you might do, uh, and this would be very disruptive and very expensive, but you might do it anyway. Uh, normally, you have a little bit of a pause in production uh, in the summertime, uh, both for uh, for, for uh, updating your plants, uh, obviously to give your workers a little bit of a break uh, to do some maintenance. Maybe you defer all that and you just keep plugging. Uh, and uh, July and August are oftentimes when uh, when things slow down, when changes are made. Uh, the, the even worse situation for General Motors, for example, they're in the middle of a changeover in Mexico uh, for their new pickup trucks. Uh, and uh, so they, they are a little bit down anyway, uh, and they're ramping up. Uh, so this couldn't come at a worse time. Yeah. So if both automakers and suppliers said, oh, we're not going to stop in July, we're not going to stop in August, uh, there are uh, people jumping out of windows, I'm sure, uh, in, uh, in a number of places. Uh, hopefully they're not on a high floor um, to, uh, to try to figure that all out. So, Alan, does anyone benefit from these? I mean, I was thinking this morning, perhaps used car values will go up in the wake of this. Uh, is there anything... Is is there anyone who's going to sort of cash in a little? Uh, that's certainly possible. Um, and for example, Ford uh, doesn't import fully built up F-150s or, or Super Duties from Mexico, whereas uh, FCA and GM do uh, their own products, obviously. Uh, so, so those are uh, those are slight differences there. Uh, there are some suppliers that perhaps don't have as much of a base in uh, Mexico. Uh, then there are companies like Matulsa, which is a Mexican. Mexican-based company uh, that supplies North America. Obviously, they've got huge issues. I mean, let's let's carry this forward. We're talking 3.9 million vehicles a year built in Mexico, 2.6 million engines, and 1.8 million transmissions. So uh, the, the question becomes, uh, you know, how does and and these parts go back and forth. Uh, uh, the issue apparently is there's no credit when you export something from the U.S., but when you bring it back as a fully uh, assembled product, is it is the tariff on the entire thing? Even more, yeah. is this even legal? And I'm not a lawyer, which means I'm not a trade lawyer, but there are side letters in the new USMCA. Some people believe those, tra- those side letters are yeah. already in effect, and those side letters might make these tariffs illegal. Yeah. Obviously, we would have to go through a court process for that. Alan Baum, thank you so much for being with us. Great, great insight. Alan Baum is principal for Baum & Associates, a Michigan-based research firm focused on auto automotive industries.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We're getting more of a sense of how China plans to retaliate against the U.S. when it comes to the escalating trade tensions, possible curbs on rare earth exports to the United States in certain key economic areas, an unreliable entities list. Joining us now to discuss what these mean for a potential trade deal is Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products at Bloomberg uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. How likely is it, Mike, that we're actually going to get a trade deal at this point? Okay, so it's my view. Um uh, you know, I, I had been optimistic previously on this show. Um, subsequently, my baseline, I don't, I don't think we're going to get a deal at this point. I what think, are the chances? Ten um, percent, I would say, well, being optimistic. Being optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what changed for you? So, I mean, I think that, you know, when, when we first heard the, you know, three, four weeks ago when we all thought there was going to be a deal, we thought that uh, there had been alignment in two views, concessions had been made, and there was going to be signing. I think what actually happened uh, was there was fundamental differences that weren't being aired. Primarily, uh, you know, I think from the Chinese perspective, they came in to negotiate a trade deal, uh, and they left the negotiations feeling like they were negotiating terms of surrender and not actually a trade deal. And it seemed like the two sides were immovable in terms of what they were going to agree on. And I think some of the core points were... Um, the Chinese felt that they were going to bend to the will of the U.S. negotiators. And once they signed the deal, the tariffs that were in place were going to remain in place until they felt they had accomplished enough to justify the removal of their tariffs. And I think that's something that they were just unwilling to agree with and sign. Uh, and I don't think the U.S. negotiators were willing to change their view on that. Uh, and then if you think about it, I think what happened in Mexico, you know, if you were to ask me that probability question yesterday, maybe I would have gone a little bit higher, but now you have to put yourself in the perspective of the Chinese. So even if they did sign a trade deal, look at what happened with Mexico. So the Chinese are worried that they're going to remain a punching bag of Trump's going into the 2020 election. So they have a trade deal, tariffs are gone, all of a sudden something happens and they get a tweet saying, you know, we're putting tariffs on for a reason why. Oh, that is actually unrelated to the trade deal that we signed. It's This is punitive for some other action that's taking place. I see. So I guess then if that's... If your base case at this point is that no trade deal will get uh, will get will get done at this point. Then play out what happens. I mean, the unreliable entities list from China, the rare earths curbs, uh, the you know, walk us through what this means. Yeah, I mean, I wrote um, on Bloomberg Opinion. I wrote something over a year ago at this point, talking about the potential repercussions of targeting Chinese tech companies, and the repercussions wouldn't just end at tariffs. Uh, it would be China beginning to target 
U.S. companies that it has some control over, either that do business in China or have some sort of production in China. So I think this is a step in that direction, right? In the U.S., we, you know, there's checks and balances and, and, and certain um, processes that have to be followed to go after a company. Uh, China's much more a command economy, run out of the center. So if there's something they want to pass that restricts a company from doing business in that country, it's a lot easier to do than it would be here. So they have a lot of, they, they can move quicker on that front. Uh, and as you see the uh, trade war escalate outside of just tariffs, uh, you, this is going to continue to progress. And then now we've seen actually the trade war go beyond China to also now move to Mexico, who again, you know, just had this trade deal agreed with the U.S., but it didn't seem to matter. All right. So, Mike, it appears that President Trump and President Xi are going to meet at the G20 coming up. Any reason to have some optimism that if you just put these two in a room that maybe they can paper over some of these bigger issues here? I mean, it's hard to see that right now. If you, if you think back to last year, it was a similar meeting that they had in Argentina that kind of kicked the can on the problem. But the differences seem so fundamental without one side um, seismically changing their beliefs. It's hard to see a deal. So maybe there's the the can gets kicked a little bit, but I'm not overly optimistic. You know, there's there's a chance something could happen. But, uh, you know, I factor that into my baseline view. Do you think that uh, this is going to kick the global economy into recession? Well, I think that, you know, the market is certainly justified to begin pricing in rate cuts by the Fed, especially now with this Mexico ex- escalation. If you have, you know, if you combine Mexican and Chinese imports to the U.S., you're talking about something like a third of all imports, and you're putting that at a 25% tariff. Uh, a lot of these are consumer goods. A lot of these are inputs to supply chain. So yeah, there's there's a really uh, meaningful risk that you could enter at least a mild recession if this goes full throttle. And I'm just looking at the WIRP function, as I do 10 every day, it seems like. But now it's all the way up to about a 92% chance of a rate cut by the year end. Does that seem kind of reasonable from your perspective? Hey, with with the recent escalation, um, yeah. I mean, it's, if this if they follow through, and you know, the, the thing is, I think people realize that it's not just rhetoric. There's action being put behind it now. We've seen the tariffs with China. We need to see what happens with Mexico. There seems to be a big misunderstanding who's actually paying for these tariffs. Obviously, who is uh, paying for these tariffs? The importers are paying for the okay. tariffs. I mean, it's yep. it's 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 a tax. It, it is it is a tax on importers. I mean, there was a point in time where there was no income tax in this country. Yep. The only tax was tariffs. Um, before so, my time, <laughs> yeah, before all of our time. All right, so all right, we'll, Mike, we'll follow yeah. up on this because I'm sure this is a story that will just keep developing. Uh, Mike McDonough, chief economist for financial products for Bloomberg, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Thanks so much. My takeaway is uh, a 10 percent chance of trade negotiations between uh, China and the U.S. That's optimistic. That's op- that's optimistic, Mike. <laughs> yeah, that's optimistic, Mike. All right, Mike McDonough, thanks very much. Potential tariffs on Mexico are also rattling markets. To get additional perspective, we turn to Mark Chandler. Mark is a managing partner and chief market strategist for Bannockburn Global Forex based in New York City. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. How disruptive do you think these new potential tariffs on Mexico could be for the U.S. economy? Yeah, I don't think that the real danger in the short run is the U.S. economy per se. It's not good in the sense that, you know, last year the U.S. economy was doing so well because we got tax cuts. And this year we're getting tax increases and it's import tax increases. Uh, but I think that the disruption is, I think it could affect the, uh, you know, we were just beginning the legislative process for ratification of the 
NAFTA 2.0 deal. I think that puts this at risk. And if, if think about the other trade partners we have. I mean, what can they take away from this? It means that even a pending trade agreement with Mexico is not enough to save them from uh, from such a, a surprise at tariffs. And so uh, I think it's a, a questions. I think uh, uh, other countries' willingness to take U.S. negotiations seriously. If the U.S. can still put tariffs on on, on Mexico, despite having a free trade agreement, a free trade agreement in the works. We still have the first NAFTA, of course. Yeah. So this, of course, brings us to China because China and the U.S. have been mired in ongoing discussions about how to resolve their trade differences in the dispute there. Uh, What does it mean for emerging markets right now that the prospect of a U.S.-China trade deal looks increasingly remote? Yeah, I thought that Mexico would have been one of the beneficiaries. Some countries, and we see this, right, some companies trying to move out of China, recognizing that the U.S. and China might be in for a sustained uh, economic tension. They want to move production closer to the U.S. Mexico is an obvious choice. In fact, since March, Mexican, uh, the U.S. imports more from Mexico than it does from China. And so uh, I think that uh, for a lot of emerging markets, I mean, other emerging markets might stand to benefit now. Maybe those countries in East Asia or maybe some other places in South America, Central America could be a beneficiary to if Mexico is sort of like you have to raise questions about the tariffs that Mexico can face. So, Mark, what does this mean? I guess you know these trade tensions with China and now Mexico cannot be good for emerging market investing. Kind of, what are your thoughts as you think about some of the emerging markets, uh, given what's going on? Yeah, but I think that's the remarkable thing, really. It's not really all emerging markets. Look what's happened. Uh, Turkey, the Turkish lira, I think, is the strongest currency. I think it's up almost 6% since it bottomed in uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Indonesia has uh, been upgraded by S&P just last night. And uh, the, with the uh, re-election and some uh, political stability, uh, so I, I think that there are some opportunities in emerging markets. I don't. I won't think it's uh, across the board as a negative, especially with the combination of falling interest rates and in countries uh, looking to like boost their competitiveness if com- companies are going to be leaving China. So I want to talk also then about where the havens are. So perhaps people are looking at where the, uh, the the riskiest spots are in light of some of these increasing trade tensions. When it comes to haven currency, the yen has been the spot, and yet the dollar is getting a bit more of a bid. Do you think the yen will retain its position really as the currency of choice? Well, it's funny that you say that, because I, I kind of think of how it, it works two ways, I think, two like channels. One channel is that a lot of institutions will use the yen and the Swiss franc as a funding currency to buy riskier assets. Because as retail investors, people want to have the asset that they buy go up. But on an institutional level, you're only not only playing for a higher asset that you're buying, but you're also trying to reduce your funding costs. And so the yen and the Swiss franc typically funding currencies, like the dollar. And so when emerging markets come under pressure, risk assets come under pressure, those, those structured positions have to be unwound. At the same time, uh, short-term speculators recognize this kind of pattern, and they also pour into a long yen or long Swiss franc positions when risk appetites wane. So I, I think that the yen and the Swiss franc still have that function, but it's, it's, it looks like what's happening. You know, the uh, what's driving down U.S. yields is showing you that the money is still coming into the U.S. or, in some cases, staying in the U.S. I mean, we're talking about our 10-year bond yield below the lower end of the Fed funds trading range. 
the Fed funds, you know, their target range. And uh, we see this in some other countries, too. Uh, in Australia, the 10-year bond yield has fallen below their cash rate, which they might cut as early as next week. So, Mark, just real quickly, what is your sense about the the rest of Latin America? What's happening potentially in Mexico? Could that bleed over either positively or negatively into some of the other uh, Latin American countries? Well, I think that uh, Colombia might be an uh, interesting alternative for, for companies who want to locate uh, uh, near the U.S., but now are scared of Mexico uh, uh, because of the because of these latest things. I think that Colombia, uh, Brazil's got its own story. Uh, Brazil's kind of interesting, especially for those people who are looking at those rare earth stories. Uh, I think Brazil has the second largest reserves of uh, those rare earths, uh, but they've got this pension reform issue going. And so, yeah, I, I really think that the uh, the real focus is going to be really on these uh, on these trade issues, like you say, Mexico, and maybe some spillover. Uh, some other countries could benefit, but I think that's not really the the, the heart of the issue. Mark Chandler, thank you so much for being with us. Mark Chandler, Managing Partner and Chief Market Strategist at Bannockburn Global 4X. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 